It's episode 27 of the Metro Fan TV Weekly Rundown. Lenzo Fernando back in action once again after a one-week hiatus when I was in parts unknown. Where was I? I'm not going to tell you. Um, anyway, um, busy week today. Pretty finally back in the win column after I think five games gone lost. And that feels, uh, I mean, that feels all right, doesn't it, Fernando? I think it's been all right. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm doing all right. I mean, yeah, I can complain about a lot of things, but, you know. I'm alive, so I'm happy. <laughs> As of course, we're, li- we're alive and breathing, and we have a special guest in the episode this week, ladies and gentlemen, because joining us is none other than Once a Metro's chief editor, Austin Fido. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Welcome to the bottom of the guest barrel. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for having me on. <laughs> Some might say that this is the pinnacle, but I guess according to horse's mouth, it's the- <laughs> we've heard otherwise. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, um, I think we find ourselves in kind of an interesting point in the club's history, right? I think, um, from the opening weeks of the season, the, um, expectations and the outlook that we've had in 2019 have kind of gone from very, very lofty to very, very gloomy in a very, 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 very small period of time right i think uh anytime um a club go the club i think went on probably its worst winless streak i think since the 2017 season which kind of tells you how much of an outlier that 2018 season really was and finally got but then finally got themselves back in the win column with i think somewhat of a you know, maybe a very pedestrian win against a weak Cincinnati squad, but a win nonetheless. So I guess we'll begin there before we dive more into the uh, larger intricacies in the Red Bull global world. So the first visit of FC Cincinnati to Red Bull Arena was a 1-0 victory. And I think the key talking point here um, going into this game was definitely the formation change, right? I think when everyone saw, I think, the uh, lineup before the game um, that week, the immediate reaction was just kind of, uh, I have no idea what the fuck this is, right? <laughs> quite frank. Um, three in the back was back. Uh, they opting with the, uh, th- the, sorry, the lineup of uh, Long, Parker, and Amro Tarek at the back. And then um, going with, I think, a six-man midfield and a lone striker up top. And Brian White. So, and oddly enough, uh, I think um, the news of the day is that this formation change actually enabled a certain Connor Laid to have probably his best performance for this club since I think the 2017 U.S. Open Cup run, where he shut down Kaikamara in the same formation. And I guess it kind of open we'll, we'll be open discussion of the game here actually so a formation change and certain personnel started to uh find themselves in it again putting on a great performance to finally seal a win at home much needed win at home so um does it work for you guys um i think uh, from what i understand the uh, first half was definitely like a lot more um so a lot more of the aggression comeback you know it was just that the moments in transition that kind of let us down throughout the game. But for the opening 45 minutes, at least, like it's resembled more of an energy drink soccer side than we've seen so far this season. 
I think I need to see a little more. Um, I mean, easier to fix problems after a win than with on the back of a string of losses. So confidence surely helps. But I think a lot of the changes that, that Armour's made for, for that game were in part due to lack of available personnel and in part just due to the, the sort of panic setting in about the the winless streak. So I I need to see how they line up against LA. Uh, I think we got lucky and, you know, there's nothing wrong with being lucky. Um, but I'm not ready to say that the new formation has saved the day. I'm not ready even to say that, you know, Connor Lade is, is, um, is the answer at, at, at fullback. Um, I think we need we need we need to we need some more information. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, 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 it's weird. It's interesting seeing this formation change because it, it's definitely. I think you you kind of hit it. You kind of hit it on the head where it, it very much came off as like okay, we have to try something. Something has to work. It seemed very very desperate. I mean, it it worked for basically maybe three quarters of the game. Um, but yeah, you know, Kamara was on the bench. Amir was on the bench. Kaku wasn't available because he's still in prison um, for murder. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's we 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 didn't have our our best eleven out there. And you know, credit credit to Chris for finding a way to because like for for a good part of the season, we've kind of seen this issue where we haven't had our best eleven even available. So credit to him to i guess finding a way to piece together a not best 11 to get a good result and look probably the best they've looked in terms of you know the press um over compared to, to a large portion of the season um and and credit to him for finding a way to finally get laid in in a in a good spot for him because he just flat out does not work the way this team should quote unquote should be playing with him as a straight left back, him as a left wing back, he doesn't have to track back as much. He can cheat a little bit more. A lot of that pressure is kind of lifted off of him. So, you know, he's just put in a better position. So I applaud him for making those changes and, and, and getting it to work. But yeah, I mean, what happens on, on Saturday, you know, I'm not, I don't, is Kamar back? Is, is Amir back? If they're back. Okay. So what formation are we doing? Are we going back to the foreign back? Cool. So last week now doesn't solve any problems for the foreign back situation. So what happens then? Are we going to see them kind of struggle to now figure out what they're doing? Does he go back to the three in the back for, uh, against Saturday? Does, does, does he try to now use this formation as something to kind of kickstart things? And he uses our best 11 as they become available, uh, and just throws them in a formation and tries to figure it out. The only way to know for sure is if, you know, over the course of the next couple of days, but this game I think is going to, show a little bit into what last week actually meant. If we go in there playing again with five in the back with our, you know, again, as many of the best 11 as possible, then maybe we're seeing a, a bit of a flashback of 2017 where, you know, Chris thinks just a full-on formation change is is what's going to be, you know, the, the move going forward. But, you know, again, until we see, actually see that over the course of a couple of games, if we even do, it, it's tough to take a lot out of last week other than, you know, we kind of got lucky against a mediocre team, and and hey, three points are three points at the end of the day. Yeah, you know. Here's I think, a question. Yeah. Think, sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, no, you go. No, I think for me, like the idea was that I think uh, looking at how the win kind of shaked out, shook out, 
like I think the formation change, I think to a degree, definitely um, doesn't solve, I think, what has been the biggest issue with this team so far this year. And that is sort of the fact that we're still struggling to create a relative vol- healthy volume of high quality chances for us to put away the game at ease. You know, I think we, it, it's a good win. I mean, it's good that we got a win, I should say. But we can't look past the fact that we basically won this game on what was essentially our only shot on goal, I think, the whole game. And that's generally not a winning formula. You know, if you're only able to kind of uh, come up with a one shot and goal against a very weak side the whole game from a guy who's been really kind of not really expected to be much of a goal threat this whole this whole season. Great that he stepped up, but you're not going to be... But it doesn't indicate to me something of this being really the basis, I think as you guys mentioned, the basis of something that can win games week in, week out. You know, I think to a degree, the luck was definitely there. If you look at the XG numbers for this game, uh, Cincinnati actually outcreated us on today. They had, I think, a 1.4, 1.3 expected goal margin. Ours only came out to about 0.6. So on the day itself, um, the, oppo- the opposition were basically like uh, outcreating us on the day. They hit the post three times in the second half. They really could have uh, had a chance to us kind of uh, to drop it. But again, you know, in the closing stages of the game. So, I mean, I'm kind of with you guys on that one. Win's a good one. But, um, look, I don't think if there's a... It, it's a win that you can kind of extrapolate um, a consistent winning formula from, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm encouraged by... Okay, so three at the back, to my mind, comes out in, in the current era when there's a bit of panic in the air and, and the back line seems suboptimal. Um, so I was encouraged, though, that Tarek seems to work well um, as part of a back three. Um, I think we already know what Laid can do. It was not, you know, if, if you stop asking him to be Kimar, and, and he's, and from what we've seen, Kimar Lawrence is the only, the only human being capable of playing really <laughs> <laughs> as a Ralph Paul fullback in MLS. Um, you know, Mario has a different set of skills that sort of compensates for the fact that he can't be Kamar either. Um, so encouraging that we seem to have a back three that we can deploy. Um, I'm also curious about White up front. I'm wondering whether White is maybe more of an answer to what the team is trying to do in its current incarnation than, than BWP. I mean, um, if you're going to be playing with your back to goal, yeah. why not go for the bigger man? Yeah, I mean, uh, that was sort of like the thing that I've been advocating for in this podcast for quite a fair bit of the season is that I've kind of wanted to see the return of a two-striker formation with White next to either BWP or Matty Jorgensen. Because I think, like, when I look at either of those players, like, I see um, I see a striker, like, Jorgensen and BWP, they kind of function the same way. You know, like, they, they're killer off the ball. They run channels or poach really well. And it seems like they kind of need someone to play off of, I think, in order to get, I think, the best out of their skill sets. And I think, like, as you mentioned, Brian White really fills that niche, I think, that niche need for someone to kind of act as this pivot or attacking point that they can kind of play off of in the attacking third. 
very, very well. You know, I think I've always, like, he's probably the most, I think, false 9 striker that we have. And he's not really, you know, he's not even that much of a false 9. But regardless, like, you can't deny that I think his hold-up play that we've seen from his various appearances with the first team can be such vital assets. And you saw it with Red Bull 2 as well. I mean, before he got called up, I think his stat line with the uh, team stood at eight goals and six assists. And that's a pretty good return for a striker in his first professional year at professional level, in any case. And, you know, I think he's definitely warranted it. You know, I think, like, um, if BWP is going to, as, you meant, as, as you've mentioned, if BWP is going to be used in this role where he's used more, I think, for his hold-up play, why not bring in someone like Brian White who can actually do... I think to hold up play to a better degree than BWP has so far this season and have BWP play off of him. You know, I think, uh, as you mentioned, you know, Brian White really making a big case for himself to uh, have more playing time this season. Yeah, I think so. I think he's, he, it's almost just as simple as a, as a sort of psychological thing. Uh, if BWP isn't scoring, he's going to be accused of being out of form. Uh, White has a lot of goals behind him at, at lower levels. That's why he's in the first team. But uh, I don't think there's the same pressure on him. So, you know, he can play 90 minutes and not score and, and be regarded as having done a, done a good job. And maybe that helps the team, you know? Yeah. Um, you're not straining in the same way that you get this the sense that, I don't know, it, it feels like BWP gets a little frustrated when he's when he's in these lean streaks. So something to take a little pressure off might might be helpful all around. Yeah, no, I, I, I it's really hard to add much to, to what you guys have said. You guys are, I think, pretty uh pretty spot on. Um, you know, White White has a uh, um this this kind of calm, cool, collective uh, uh, presence when he's on the field. He never looks, he rarely looks rattled or 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 um or under pressure when when he's up there. He just he just kind of does his thing. And I think that speaks to, to, to Fado's point where, you know, maybe that's kind of what you need right now. Um, someone who can just kind of go out there and, and just do his work for 90 minutes and, and kind of make things happen without the the stress of, you know, being BWP. So, yeah, I mean, at, at this point, at this point, I, I'm pretty open to anything that that's going to um, that's going to let the team produce goals and, and, and uh, you know, give give BWP a little bit of breathing room so maybe he can start scoring goals. Um, I still think it's, it's a mix though of, of not just BWP. I mean, I've been very critical of, of him this year. I, I definitely think I mean, yeah, it's hard not to see it in my opinion that he's definitely declined when he gets the ball, he doesn't look the same his movement doesn't look the same. But I also think that there's some issues before, uh, before the ball even gets to him that might be also making things, um, a lot more difficult on Brad that maybe, puts more pressure on him to kind of just create something when he does finally get the ball, when things are finally clicking that, you know, one or two times a game, that's probably not helping. So I think in, in some ways kind of sorting out some of the midfield issues uh, will just naturally take off the pressure from Brad because he'll just get a lot more, uh, a lot more chances in front of goal. And, you know, he's the kind of guy that rides off rides on confidence. If, if he's getting one clean chance a game, I mean that's that's tough for any striker, but if if you give Brad of all people the chance, you know four, five, six good chances a game, one of those are going in. One of them are going to go in. So 
uh, I'm all for changing things up and mixing things up a little bit up top, but I, I, I think the bigger issue is probably fixing what's going on in the midfield, especially in that um, in the, the first couple of moments after transition uh, that that'll just, again, just kind of give Brad some more, some more chances. I think um, there's uh, some pretty interesting sets of data that got released recently with regards to the midfield issues actually. And uh, I think, Two things stood out. I think these were graphs that we took from uh, Chuck Hei Ho, I think, on Twitter, at Tactics Platform, which is a great follow if you're into the analytics side of things. And, uh, you know, I think it's clear that the midfield issues uh, not just stem from defensive pressure, because I think it's clear that when you compare the 2018 to the 2019 team side by side, that pressure, the pressure higher up the field's kind of, um, what is it, kind of fallen off a little bit, right, I think, this year. And as a result of that, like um, we're not really kind of generating um, transition or turnover moments as intensely as we were in 2018. But also on top of that, like a, another interesting graph that we took from a, let's say, a user J Moore Quakes, I think, who writes for ASA. I think um, interesting low key killer that has been killing our offense this year has been turnovers. You know, we've been turning over the ball a lot at a much higher degree in the attacking third this season than we have last season. And, you know, we're, we are always going to be a team that really gen- that does give the ball away, back away a lot because we do the instruction from short transition play once we win it back in midfield is to always play the ball forward no matter how risky or how tight the space is, right? Which will generally result in a lot of, um, you know, turnover moments for the other team, turnover moments for us. But it also results in turnovers for the other team. But we've been turning the ball over to such a high degree this year that it kind of indicates to me that we haven't done a very good job of taking care of the ball once we've won it back immediately in transition. You know, it's not like we've won the ball back, settled it, and then moved it forward and generated and turned the ball over again. No, it just seems that a literal lack of control in midfield has resulted in this kind of losing the ball or losing the handle of the ball like almost as quickly as we win it back, you know. And, you know, when you talk about struggles in transition, I think it kind of has to start and stop there. And why I'm kind of intrigued by this formation change is because here you're kind of seeing the same answer that Jesse Marsh threw out in 2017 when this team wasn't really firing in all cylinders, right? What do you do when there's no one in the midfield who can kind of cover the same amount of ground as you could in a five-man configuration. You add an extra body in there. And, and why I find this very interesting is that, um, what is it? I think in 2017, it kind of worked because you still had, um, you know, I think um, you had guys like Felipe and you guys had guys like Tyler Adams who could kind of pinch in, cover a ton of ground still. But... It, it, the way that this team kind of is um, kind of put together this year is that you don't kind of have someone on this roster, I think, um, other than potentially Christian Caceres, who could kind of play that anchoring role as well as either of those two. You know, I think um, it's still pretty clear to me that as this game progressed, you know, I think um, a lot of what we were talking about earlier in the season, with there being a lot of space opening up in the midfield generally looking a bit porous, kind of showed itself again here, I think, this game. 
as Cincinnati kind of grew into it. And it really just highlights to me, I think, like how it's it potentially may require bringing in someone who can play that defensive midfield um, position in a much more specialized manner to fix the issues that this team is kind of having with its midfield. You know, they're definitely they're missing that aggression and they're missing that capacity to generate and settle um, the ball to start the transition um, this season. And it's really shown, you know, I think um, um, I want to, it's why I think I kind of want to see what this three, what this six man midfield would look like with Christian Kasser is in it because he's settled. uh, He's added a little bit of that bite that's been missing and this ability to kind of settle the ball and start the transition really, really well. So I think I'm kind of a interesting talking point kind of comes back. I think you can generate a lot of interesting talking points from from there. Well, the the first one for me is what what are we? What is what is our identity? Are we a team that still doesn't really care about possession, isn't sweating turnovers, is just trying to get high up the field quick, um, or are we trying to be more more patient and look after the ball a little better when we have it, um, so that we're no longer the sort of team that that opponents feel they can just give the ball to, and that's the best way to neutralize us. And I and I think, you know, we a team that is losing is going to generate a lot of sad stats. Um, but ultimately, are we are we coughing up the ball in bad positions because we just aren't playing very well, or are we coughing up the ball in bad positions because we're not advancing? We're not we're not trying to play as high up the field as we used to, and is that is that the root of the problem? We've kind of come loose from from the identity that had worked previously. You know, I think I, I think um, having to, to address that, I think I really do think it's kind of like a little bit of both, judging from the instructions that we've kind of had this year. Because um, you know, the, the the buzzword that's been used a lot this year is deliberate passing, right? I think um, a lot of mm-hmm. the things that we kind of saw, I think, from the manager and how he wants to play is that they want to be a bit more deliberate with how they kind of attack going forward. But uh, the general early returns that we've kind of seen from that haven't been very promising because this is a team that's not really built to kind of be a bit more methodical in possession. You know, like I think it's always been from twenty from 2015 to 2018, once the ball's been won back, bang, you go, boom. You go direct as possible and you try and make it to the goal as little passes as possible. But you're not really seeing that as much this year. And I think, like, when I talk about turnovers generally being a bit higher this season, I think, um, like, it's kind of a result of this deliberate passing mechanism or, like, a tactical instruction, I think, kind of not really paying dividends. You know, like, the, the slower the ball being kind of moved a bit a lot slower results in the opposition. Defenders not really being caught out of position as much as they would if we were like just going from the word go, boom. But it also kind of results, and as a result of that, as a result of them being a bit more settled, you know, I think um, now the defenders kind of know what to expect from us, you know, and they can adjust accordingly. You know, I think, um, yeah. I think that... I will say it's it's kind of funny, you know, there's all this talk of this team becoming like some possession-based team, and you know, part of being a good possession team is you have to be able to pass, right? Yeah. You have to be able to, I mean, that's one of the most basic fundamental things. So I kind of just chuckle sometimes at this idea that 
you know, we're supposedly turning into this you know, possession-based team, and <laughs> we are clearly failing at one of the most basic principles of that, which is just clean, smart, intelligent passing. Um, so whether that's deliberate or not, whether it, it's it's a mixed bag, it's hard to say. I mean, if you listen to Chris himself talk in in the Massey videos and 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 the the you know der, um, training you know press conferences and stuff, I mean, he's still very much talking about them. About him wanting them to to press and be aggressive and 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 he he says all the he talks all of the 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 eds you know language i guess but then you do hear these little sprinkles of 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 you know being more patient um sometimes knowing when to slow it down so there's there's obvious there's clearly some kind of instruction to at the very least in certain moments um maybe not be as, as frantic and, and maybe be a little bit more precise and, and, and targeted in, in what they're trying to do in that transition. And we've talked about it here before. Maybe that's, maybe his communication on that is just not well, or or maybe it's just how he's trying to get them to do it is just too conflicting for, for what they've kind of learned to play, which is kind of chaotic at times. And and maybe that's why we're seeing that transition that that transition suffer. Um, there's been a lot of games this year where you see them trying to press. You see them pressing, um, even even if they had a even if they're instructed to play a little deep, they they're still pressing deeper more often than not. There are some times where you're like, you know, why aren't they pressing at all? But it just seems like there's this kind of state of confusion of what are they? What is this team really? supposed to be is 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 the idea is is chris's idea um for us to still be pressing but with some kind of asterisk in certain moments that, that seems to me at least to be the the most likely thing but i just we just haven't seen it really work so far this year and i'm not sure it can work but it it's i don't know there there's just the, the most for me the biggest question is just to hear from 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 Chris uh, from Chris flat out like you know is to I would love for someone just to flat out ask him what has he changed are are you trying to slow the press down are are you going away from the press in certain moments that, I mean to me that would that would probably be the easiest way to find out the solution for what he's trying to do but it's it's been tough to kind of piece together exactly what you know what they're trying to do and what this team is quote unquote supposed to be doing compared to last year and, and, and now under Chris Armas? I think I think he's trying to win that game that, you know, the last couple of years has, has ended our season. He's trying to win that game against a team that knows we're going to come out and try and be fitter and faster and gives us the ball and, and choke us on our own possession. Um, and I think he started trying to, to, to be clever about that in the playoffs last year. And he's sort of continuing from that not in, not at all successful outing against Atlanta, trying to crack the code of how to win that game, how to win, how to win that game where your, your opposition knows exactly what's coming. Um, and he's, it, it, it's not been particularly successful so far. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd say since he's kind of adopted this or, or embraced, because he was, he was trying things all the way through last year, but I think he's, he's gone full tilt at it since the Atlanta playoff fiasco. Um, and my concern, well, I guess the part I can't figure out is, is he overreacting to that one game 
um, which if we carry on in this sort of form, we're not going to get to play anyway. Um, <laughs> or are we overreacting to some early season teething problems? And they, you know, they don't care about the Shield this year. They want to win some knockout tournaments. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what it, I mean, we, we we've kind of seen this echoed a little bit, right? I think um, Armis himself said that um, one of his 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 coaching philosophy, like the guiding thing that guides his coaching philosophy at this moment, is kind of as you mentioned, what do they do when the opposition decides to give you the ball and just say, forget it, we're gonna like I think. Um, I think he's definitely, he said it before the uh, Chicago game that we kind of want to be a team that can beat you both ways, you know, beat you off the press, but also beat you inside the bunker and kind of, you know, like try to uh, just strangle the life out of the game and give the team the ball, you know, but there, I think as we've mentioned, and this may be a seeg into our next segment, but we've mentioned generally that there's only been one team and one, I think, particular coach that has been that has kind of managed to crack this formula successfully in the entirety of the Red Bull Global, um, what is it, or hierarchy, and it's become I think a recurring phrase on this podcast the past few weeks. But Marco Rose's Salzburg, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, it's Salzburg time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the only team, as far as, as far as to my knowledge. Well, that was like thirty minutes before you rolled out full. Yeah, it's a new. <laughs> it's a new it's restraint. Like it's, usually, it's come after the hour mark when everyone's just kind of given up and hearing his talk. But um, you made it to half an hour. That's right. We're talking a bit about Salzburg now. I mean, like Marco Rosa Salzburg again, the only Red Bull Global team, to my knowledge, that has kind of um, successfully managed to crack this possession more deliberate building up formula you know i think it's just as a result of the amount of playmakers that they have in that team who are comfortable in both pressing and in you know and in possession you know i think um but when we talk about possession in context of like a red bull global team you know it's not really this slow methodical way of building up play like we are playing Catanaccio and Serie no it doesn't really kind of work that way right like <laughs> possession in context of a Red Bull global team generally entails very quick very um decisive passing and movement sets you know you're starting to see Red Bull 2 do a bit more of that this season and it's kind of paid really really good dividends but it hasn't really quite clicked at that first team yet and I think when you talk about incongruity between identity and manager instructions. I think you also kind of have to talk about incongruity between player selections and coaching philosophy, you know, because there are some people in the starting 11 right now who just simply aren't capable of making those decisions or making or moving or passing and moving in context of quick possession sets right now, as you do in either Salzburg or Red Bull 2. And I think it really kind of is another compounding variable here is kind of a maybe, you know, like does Chris Armas also kind of have the players to pull off what he wants to pull off? And so far, I think as you guys have kind of mentioned, the early returns in that question has been quite simply no. No, they don't. Yeah, you know. there comes a point in the season where you, you have to you have to kind of shelve the the stylistic ambition and, and go for points 
um, if you started to fall behind. And I think that's what we saw with, with the formation change um, against Cincinnati. They're never going to entirely step away from their, their tactical identity. And, you know, Armas's twist on that, I don't think is going to get entirely jettisoned. But at some point, you have to you have to start being a little bit more pragmatic. And I think that's that's what we saw with, I guess, what we're calling a 3-6-1 um, against Cincinnati. And maybe that's what we'll see again, possibly, you know, a, a, a different formation tailored to whatever he thinks LA is going to throw at us. Um, but there's no way he can... Well, we know he's not looking at, you know, the first two months of the season and, and patting himself on the back. Um, and we can infer from, you know, some of the, the wild and wonderful rumours that were floating around um, that he's coming under a little bit of pressure. Um, so he's looking for points on the board, and I assume he will he will circle back to uh, trying to impose whatever. Maybe it's the Salzburg vision. Maybe he just wants them playing like Salzburg. Um, they're not there at the moment, and he's only got about 12 players to pick from at the moment, so maybe it's the wrong time in the season to be trying <laughs> to push it forward anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because the way you know, Lens, the way you described, you know, Salzburg. I mean, it, a lot of those terms is you hear from Chris himself, uh, himself saying what he wants them to be. Um, I just, you know, the the quality of of Salzburg's roster and and the quality of of ours, and no disrespect to our team, I think we have a great team and a great roster. But I mean, let's be honest, I I, I think the, um. I think there's definitely a difference in in, in just in just quality. Forget the the the, the ability of the, of the manager to instruct the players to do these certain things. I just think the player pool is just it's quite a bit different. So it's it's going to be a much much more uh, much more difficult learning curve, I guess, for this team to to try to figure out. And you know, may, maybe Chris isn't the person. Maybe the idea of this is in fact completely possible with this roster. Maybe you know, Chris just isn't the person to. Um, to kind of crack the code, maybe it, it it's going to require a different manager, or maybe it's different players, maybe it's a combination of both. Um, but it, it's going to be interesting for me. And I, if I you brought up a good point, it's going to be interesting to see how Chris reacts to this in the next couple of games. Where yeah, you need points at a certain point. You know, yeah, MLS is MLS, and you know, unfortunately, you can kind of bomb out the whole the first half of the season and still be crowned the the the, the champions of of MLS. Um, but you still need points. And, and even though we have that extra spot now, cause there's seven teams instead of, instead of six, um, we're not looking too good right now. So at some point you have to get points. So I guess where my concern is how much has he, how much is, how much has he tried to inject into this whole thing where now it gets even more confusing where he's like, okay, guys, forget all that. Let's just play like we did, you know, first half of last year and you've just injected so many of the of these ideas. Now it's hard for, for the guys to kind of throttle back on that and and maybe go back to where they played in the first half. So it, it's gonna be, it's not gonna be an, an easy an easy balance. And and I really hope that that he hasn't kind of pinned himself against the wall of of you know again making the players potentially confused or possibly worse, just saying you know what I can throttle back on that a little bit, but still try to you know tinker a little bit and and we just end up not getting the results at all and you know god forbid we don't end up making playoffs at all that would be absolutely terrible um yeah i feel no no go ahead i feel like with with both 
the first team and the two team, they I reckon they they back themselves to find a, a seam of form at some point in the season. Um, you know, sometimes you hit that right away, pretty much, as the two teams seems to have done this year and as they did in 2016. Sometimes it it picks up a lot earlier in the year than anticipated, as I think happened in uh, to a certain extent last year. Um, and and you just run with that. But we've seen this this team struggle in this era before. We saw it in 2016. We saw it in 2017. And eventually, Jesse kind of found his way to a lineup that works and a set of instructions that worked, and the results started to come. And we we hit the postseason feeling, you know, pretty optimistic, uh, more or less. Uh, so I I think that's you know, Armas has taken the, the 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 kind of slack that he's allowed to figure out something new. Um, and I'm, what I'm wondering is whether Cincinnati is, we'll look back on the Cincinnati game as the moment in the season where he said, okay, that was, that, that didn't work. Um, or whether he's going to keep kind of banging his head against this wall for, for a month or two longer. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of have, I'm kind of curious about like this idea of, I think of managers into Red Bull Global, like, or kind of tinkering with that, with the pressing setup before trying to return to it later in the year. Because it kind of, because I think when, when you play something as kind of complex or as very intricate, maybe, I think that's a better word, as um, the press is, you know, and ideally, like, you know, as you mentioned, that anything that gets added to it is an extension of using the high press as your identity, um, first and foremost. But I guess like now it kind of begs an interesting question of if we've kind of seen other Red Bull Global managers kind of having had tried to add these little wrinkles here and there before throwing the whole thing out the window about halfway through the season and going back to the original formula. And I think off the top of my head with regards to this, like a mid-season tactical changes, um, didn't really come about from the last Red Bull um, manager that I remember who really used that possession buzzword quite a fair bit, which was Ralph Hasenhutl. And the last Red Bull manager to lose his job before the end of the season was a Peter Ziedler in 2015, before the Oscar Garcia tenure at Salzburg. That kind of makes me, mm-hmm. um, kind, which man, it makes me a bit curious because I think, as I mentioned, like, Mid-season change isn't generally something that you see with a, with Red Bull Global, right? I think generally you see the manager generally get until the end of the year to figure something out. And if it's not up to snuff, he gets the axe, you know? They axed Hassenhutl at the end of the year. And Ziedler was the only one that I can remember um, who didn't make it to the end of uh, the season before you got the axe. So I think it, so it really does harken back. I think, and I think I kind of want some opinions on this harkens back to what Fernando mentioned about having this, I think, um, tenet of being, of whether or not you're truly able to fully redeem the team at this point from, um, you know, whatever it is that Armas has tried to kind of tinker and introduce and get them playing, you know, quote-unquote, fully-fledged, fully-realized energy drink soccer again. 
So I kind of need some, do you guys have any insights potentially and previous attempts at changing tactics mid-season throughout the Ripple Global organization? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that's, that's from my memory, that's probably the, the most recent one. Um, I remember a quote from, from, uh, uh, from Ralph flat out, like pointing out, you know, that he kind of detracted from their identity, um, you know, kind of criticized, you know, him uh, shifting to more possession, uh, possession-based stuff. Um, there was also more to that firing. I, I find you could probably correct me if I'm wrong, but it was something, there was some chatter about apparently he kind of like snuck behind her back and had some meetings with Bayern. And I think like Oliver was willing to kind of just like let it slide, but Ralph was like, no, absolutely not. So maybe there's more to it, but that's definitely the most recent um, the most recent person I can, or a manager I, I can, I can think of who, you know, when things got tough, when teams were quote unquote, figuring out the press, he struggled to, um, to adapt to that. And his, his solution was to kind of just throttle the press back a little bit and, and, you know, kind of tweak their identity a little bit and tweak their style. Um, and, you know, it, it, it hurt them. You know, they didn't have uh, they didn't have a terrible season, but they definitely had um, a season, I think, below what they expected to. And yeah, I mean, Ralph flat out, you know, he had mentioned it at least on, on one or two interviews that I remember reading. Um, he brought up the whole the whole thing of him changing, uh, changing their identity a bit. So, yeah, I mean, I think I don't think they as my my handle on the Hassan Hurdle situation was that they didn't they didn't let him go. Um, they didn't kick him out. They wanted him. Didn't it ultimately come down to they offered him a year and he wanted two years and you know we now know that they had they were they were looking a little bit ahead, um, so maybe they didn't part on the best of terms, but it wasn't as though they they chased him out of there. And I think the primary reason why we haven't seen a lot of change in mid-season uh, outside Brazil, which is a kind of outlier anyway. Um, but the reason we haven't seen a lot of change in midseason recently in Leipzig, Salzburg, or, or New York is there hasn't been a lot of reason to. Uh, you know, the Salzburg has been winning everything for the last few years, seemingly regardless of who's in charge. Um, <laughs> Leipzig, yeah, they they had a, you know, R- Ralph got them up, and then the other Ralph gave them a magnificent debut season, and they they took a step back, but they were talking down expectations in that second season in Bundesliga for the whole year. They kind of almost expected they were going to trip up a little. If anyone was going to get fired midway through, it would have been Jesse in 2016 or 2017. And as we now know, Jesse, Jesse has, you know, he, he has his hands on the strings of Ralph Rangnick's heart. (laughs) He is the soccer son that Ralph always wanted. <laughs> Jesse was allowed to guide the team to a very, very pedestrian 2017 and say it was the best year ever and, and suffered no repercussions whatsoever. That is true. It is interesting that, that we had a, a pretty pretty decent drop from 2016 to 2017. Granted, we did, we did make it to the US Open Cup final, um, but we did have a pretty mediocre year in 2017 and you know, we we started 2018. I mean, in, in pretty much the best possible way you, you anyone could have ever imagined. Um, but yeah, that that didn't seem to really detract um, the uh, the Austrian overlords in any way to to you know I guess how they felt 
uh, how they felt about about Jesse and I guess what he was capable of. So it's it's Jesse's probably an exception to to this. Uh, I, I there's no insight from what I've seen as far as where Chris Armis stands in the eyes of of uh, of Rebel Global, but I I don't think it's a stretch to 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 say it's probably not. You know, they're probably not in the same category in any way. I think he's on but, a much shorter leash, a much, much shorter Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to add that. pretty much I was going to say. I would imagine that he wouldn't have um, – if I would imagine a, a 2017 version, uh, but under Chris Armas would, would, not, would, not, would not result in a similar, you know, following year that, that well, Jesse had. We now know that 2017 was basically when, when Jesse – went off and mapped out this this path to Europe. I mean, he came, he came back from that break with the decision taken that he was going to do all the coaching badges. And, uh, and you know, they lost... That was the year we lost Ali as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, so there was, a, there was a lot of change, but Jesse's position, you know, they'd made a commitment. They made an investment. It would have been a bit awkward to fire him um, while you simultaneously were sponsoring him to go flying off to Scotland every, every three months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and that's also when, when that, you know, there's, there's a strong theory out that, that Jesse kind of led that, uh, um, led that, that coup to, to get Ali out of there to begin with. Cause I mean, he, he pretty much spent that entire, uh, that entire off season in, in, uh, in Germany and in Austria with um with Leipzig and, and, and Salzburg right right as all that stuff was kind of going on to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And that and and I mean it was the, the that was the weirdest off season. That was the off season where the, the club had no official position on where Jesse Marsh was for like a week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like the, the the official answer to the question where is Jesse right now at one point was answered, well or where has Jesse been? When he came back, when he landed just in time for the draft. The official answer to the question, where has Jesse been, was he'll tell you himself tomorrow. <laughs> I forgot about that, yeah. And I, I don't think that's because people didn't know. I just think that's because, you know, there was there was a line that had to be produced and the, and it was going to be produced by Jesse. Yeah. I guess so, um, you know, I guess um, it's kind of weird looking back at that 2017 season now, actually, and how um, kind of in flux it all is, but... I mean, I guess um, now to kind of fully, like, fully kind of get at the crux of what I think, um, what I had in mind for this episode, is that you know it generally does seem that this is uncharted territory for the project in New York so far, right? I think uh, what we've seen from previous indications is that mid, that yeah, we generally haven't had to switch, you know, the tactical system much midway through the season because we were kind of always riding off a winning formula. And for most seasons, 2015 through 2018, um, that press got us to the pinnacle in the East for the most part, right? So um, I guess what it kind of, kind of what makes this interesting for me is that now I think on top of, you know, the roster kind of being in flux and uh, the tactics and the players kind of not really coming, you know, not maybe being the most congruous fit for each other. What also you kind of have to add to the equation is the fact that the architect behind all this, the brain that kind of helped this team navigate through those choppy waters 
1617 to become this fully realized juggernaut, or more fully realized juggernaut, I should say, in 2018, is gone. And now we kind of find ourselves in very interesting, I think, uncharted waters here with regards to the project in New York, because A, we're starting to see, A, we have a manager who seems pretty interested in trying to add these little um, bits to an already winning formula and not really getting back, um, you know, not really getting good dividends being paid out in that. And B, like the question going forward is, will he kind of have the same mind, I think, or the same aptitude to kind of steer the ship back on course, either by getting them and reteaching the system that kind of guided them there to the top in 2018? Or, and I think that's kind of going to make the difference for this season for me, is that now I think at this point, a lot of it rides on Chris Armas. And it has been for, I think, most of this year, but now especially so. You know, I think now we, like, I think, uh, which is why I think the LA game coming up this weekend is going to be really pivotal because it's going to see if he's trying to guide this team back on the course that he kind of plotted out in 2018 or if um, they kind of continue on with this, you know, this possession, this deliberate passing experiment a little bit more. And I think why I kind of want to focus discussion on this particular tenant now is because I think to the fans anyway, it seems that these changes that Chris Armas has introduced have been detrimental, right? I think there's no other way to put it. You know, I think probably the way that this team has performed through the opening few weeks of the season, this, this has been, there's been a detriment on the way this team has played soccer this year. And I think now why, and, you know, as a result of that, you know, there's been talks, you know, the system's gone. EDS is dead. The system is no longer the star and we need to bring in, I don't know, like Lionel Messi or something to save our season, right? We need big name players to put butts in seats and whatever fuck shit nonsense have you. We're not as good as we were in 2018. All these talking points are starting to come out. And, you know, I think... um, you know, I think this notion, I think, of I think, you know, the, the, there's this notion of people hitting the panic button as of now. And I think it's kind of, you know, raised these issues about whether or not the system is truly beyond repair and whether or not it can be fully redeemed at this point. And what I kind of wanted to address with that is that I really don't think that the system, I, as it's played, at the New York organization is dead. If anything, um, last time I checked from USL all the way down to the under 12s, you know, it's very much alive. The hype, teaching the high press is still the central guiding, tactical philosophical tenet that guides every single team from USL down to the under 12s, right? So, the incongruity for me is that it seems to start and end the manager's instructions with the senior team and a potential fix with either. And, you know, I think uh, like uh, it, it would be rather sensationalist in my opinion to say that EDS or Red Bull Global has completely abandoned the team at this point. Right. Because 
if that were the case, then they wouldn't really be playing this high pressing system up and down the organization at all. And I think that'd be fair to say. Like I think, like it'd be, I'd be very hard pressed to see if Chris Armis went to Oliver Mintzlaff and said, "Fuck this, I'm going to play deliberate passing." No, <laughs> we are a possession team now. I feel that won't go yeah, down. No, well. I feel like exactly like <laughs> if Chris Armis has that much clout, then hey, New York is the apex team in the Ripple Global organization. Congratulations! It's what you guys always wanted, right? Being sick of being Leipzig's <laughs> right. like feeder club and shit. Like if Armis had that much clout with Global, it probably mean that we're the apex team. But the fact of the matter is that. No, like, like you can very much see that energy drink soccer is very much alive in the hierarchy. Like the results you're starting to see from the USL team this year have shown that, you know, and if anything, they've kind of married those two philosophical tenets together really well to kind of become, I think, the most Salzburg-like team that I've seen play in America so far, you know, and Oh, and I, I think this is the, the strongest big picture. If you're Oliver Minslav, this is the this is basically the best New York has ever been in terms of the big project. Um, you know, they ran away with the league last year, won won the league in in better than anyone has ever won the league before in MLS. Um, Tyler Adams, our, our big prospect, goes straight into the starting lineup in Leipzig and looks like he, he was born to play that. Looked like he'd been raised to play that role. Um, and the talk, I, I think it's sort of established at this point in Leipzig that, you know, Ralph likes to talk down his active coaching role. And he says he leaves that to his assistants, one of whom is Jesse. So they've had a pretty good season. They're in a cup final. Jesse is is a very active part of that coaching group and he's just been handed the the keys to Salzburg the, the which is is the shiniest fastest car in the garage right now um yeah. so and so if you're Minslav and you're looking at New York yeah results results are poor and the team looks like it's kind of lost its way um but in terms of the big picture and how New York plugs into the big picture and remember it was only was it February that Ralph said they need um, they need the the group to be producing more players. They need more players coming out of New York. They need more players coming out of Salzburg. Um, I don't know how they get any more coming out of Salzburg, but they they need that group firing. Yeah. Um, and- in, in, I just wanted real quick. He also had mentioned uh, Brazil, which I thought was interesting. That was like the first time I think I've ever him explicitly <laughs> mentioned Brazil. Another. Uh, They've kind of given Brazil a little shot in the arm, and we'll see what happens there. But it, it's it feels like that that whole is it Bragantino that they've they've yeah. bought, yep, um, or quote unquote merged supposedly. It's it's essentially a merger, but with Rebel like taking over everything, and I think they get to keep like their their badge or or something. So the so I think the the group has never been healthier. The overall philosophy has probably never been healthier. Ralph keeps get, get, getting asked if you know the job is done and he wants to move on, and and he keeps saying no. Although I, I don't suppose he would say anything else until until the day he leaves. Um, and and we we've had a bad start to a season after arguably the best season in the club's history. Um, 
So I, I think if, you, if you're a mint laugh and you're looking at New York and you're thinking, well, what, what is ailing New York? Unfortunately, the answer is probably Chris Armas. Not a lot else changed, unless you believe that Tyler Adams single-handedly, heroically was responsible for every good thing that happened over the last three or four years. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting here in that that perspective, and, and I mean, I, I guess I understand where some people, uh, I guess, develop that opinion just because it it was it was hard. Like, if you're that plugged in, where where you're even calling it editing soccer, or, or like you really just have a decent grasp, I think of of um, the total connection of of Red Bull Global Soccer. I think it's super clear that yes, Jesse was was I mean, borderline obsessive. Uh, with with this whole project and in, in, in the best possible way. I mean, he really, truly was the perfect person to come here and, and, and kickstart this this whole project. Um, but like at the same time, I think that that it's it, I guess it's hard for me to, to, to accept an argument that this this emerging soccer superpower, I think, in, in Rebel Global, um, I mean, if you, if you look at how wide their arms spread in terms of developing players, um, is it's really really wide. And, and just I mean, look, you have they have two teams doing pretty well in international play in, in in Europe. But if you look at this organization, who are not perfect, they are not a perfect organization. Whether we're talking about Rebel Global, Salzburg, Leipzig, or New York individually across the board, they're not perfect. They all make mistakes. So there, I'm, I'm not going to say or say that they're just all you know perfect being. But they are a very smart organization in how they've managed to put together what they have put together um, across all their clubs. I just—it's hard for me to accept this idea that they—they they just gave the keys to some at the time kind of mediocre MLS manager to implement this this organization-wide system to just throw a briefcase at him full of money to invest in 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 implementing this this idea and his philosophy from the first team to their brand new uh, uh, second team uh, uh, down to the academy god even down to the RDS programs you know across their their 40,000 plus kids in their youth system their i don't know something crazy like 1000 plus uh, uh, coaches under their under their their youth umbrella all because of Jesse Mars like to me that just seems that's insane. I don't think people truly understand the scope of investment that they've that this organization has made, uh, really to just implementing this philosophy. It's not, you know, the, the academy isn't just, or, or even just a, the the youth affiliates. Like they're not just going to these seminars and like just throwing a handbook at them and saying, okay, this is the high press, go and try to do this stuff. No, like they're these seminars and the training and all the stuff that this that that the team does. Uh, uh, to implement this philosophy down in the, in the youth ranks is extremely ex- ex- extensive. It's very, very intense. I personally have met people who who have either you either uh, was somehow affiliated with uh, with the Rebel Youth System or still are had a kid in there or, or, or something. And every single one of them tell me how intense uh, uh, this this push down of this philosophy is across organization. Again, I, I just I can't accept this idea that 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 you know Red Bull said, okay, here you go, mediocre at the time MLS guy. Here's everything you need to do this, and like once you leave, yeah, who who cares what happens afterwards? Like it just to me, it just seems like a weird 
proposition. Like I, I don't, I don't get it. Especially after, like, if 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 we saw what's happening now happen for two years, like if we have this weird mediocre, uh, 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 how we've started the season the way we have, and it carry on, carries on this whole season, and then next year it's the same thing. I can, I can, okay, I'll accept that that argument, but we're talking seven games into the regular season, seven, and and plus what four Champions League games. Uh, to me, that's nowhere near enough of a sample size to to say, okay, that's it. Rebel Global clocked out. You know, they they got Jesse, they got Adams, they got everything they need, and now they're just casting us to the side. Just that whole idea just seems really weird if you actually know and understand and and, and see again the scope of investment that that this organization has done for us to implement and kind of fall in line with this whole total philosophy of the high press youth development, both in terms of, of internal uh, development and external, meaning bringing guys from overseas and, and kind of developing them, bringing them along. It's just, it's a weird proposition to just say it's all gone because Jesse's gone. That would be, it would be madness for them to walk away from it. It just started to work. It just, it just last year, it just started to work. They, they got what they wanted. They got a player through the pipeline into the first team in Leipzig. They got a coach through the pipeline uh, who's now going to be coach, uh, head coach in the, in the family in Europe. Um, and they were, they were the most dominant team points-wise in MLS history. That, that we were l- always likely to take a step back from those heights this year. Um, I don't think we, it was necessary to take such a step back. Um, but, uh, and, and to a certain extent, Chris is getting, he's kind of the victim, I think, of, um, a, a sort of shift in context. Um, Jesse had his struggles. Uh, Jesse, we, I, I would say that part of the issues that we, we saw in, in 2016 and 2017 were, you remember sophistication? Remember they, they wouldn't shut up about sophistication for two off seasons? Yep. Um, and the four two two two, and this was at the time when they didn't want to say Ralph Ball, and they didn't want to say that they were in any way, you know, they they barely knew that Europe existed, and um, <laughs> Ralph Rangnick was just some guy who who you know were, they might have heard of, um, and but they they were obsessively trying to get the four two 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 off the ground, and I think that was part of the reason why we ran into trouble in both those seasons because it just didn't work, and and Jesse came back to a formation that, that the players he had could understand and could uh, could work with. What we know now, of course, is that somewhere along the line there, Jesse became much more important to the organization than just the guy who's coaching the Red Bulls. Um, and maybe he got a little more uh, time and a little more patience. Um, maybe the underlying stats that are important to them just looked healthy that whole time. I mean, one of the things that things that's interesting to me this year is this is basically what happened in 2016 this start and I remember in 2016 feeling I was on a bit of an island saying that the team was terrible um, and people were saying no the team's fine you know the the, the underlying stats show the team's going to be fine um, whereas for me if you if you lose five out of six games you you're a bad team go win some to, to prove otherwise um, <laughs> Uh, and we're in the same position this year, except I don't see a lot of people saying, oh, the team's fine, the underlying stats are fine. Um, people are now reacting the way I, I had expected the, the fan base to react in 2016. 
um, which is, you know, we're losing games, we're not playing well, something has to change. And I think it's almost a little harsh on Chris because Jesse has got all the credit. Um, and it wasn't Jesse who guided that team to home to 71 points. Um, it wasn't Jesse who was in charge for the back end of last the last season. Um, but Chris, rightly or wrongly, um, and certainly this is this is the way he sets up in my head. He, I don't give him a lot of credit for what happened last season. The 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 moment when I feel he really stepped out and tried to establish himself was when he fell on his face in the first leg against Atlanta. Um, and he's carried some of that with him into this season, and he hasn't really successfully shaken it off. So at the same time, Mintlaff and, and, and everyone in Austria can now go to any coach in the world, and this, is, this was really what was at the root of the Henri rumor, whether there was any truth to it or not, it, it, it got some legs because you can, in theory, now go to any coach in the world and say, look, you start out in Red Bull New York and you could end up at Leipzig. It, it, Jesse Marsh is on that path. He's been given those that opportunity. If he succeeds at Salzburg, then you know he's either going to move on to Leipzig or do what every other Salzburg coach seems to have done recently and go to a team that's arguably bigger than Leipzig. And so I don't think Chris gets is getting the credit, and I think he's under a bit more pressure because not just because of what Jesse achieved, because of what Jesse represents. Jesse represents a potentially a new chapter for for New York in the family. Um, you can start a career in New York now and finish it in in Champions League in Europe, if that's if that's what you want to do. And that route wasn't available before. It is now. Yeah, I think um this brings up like an interesting like point about MLS sort of being like this little testing slash proving ground for managers that they're interested in bringing into I think the Red Bull Global umbrella. Right. Because I think a lot of people I think to start the season, we're starting to wonder about what comes next after Chris Harvis. If the ship doesn't get right, if their ship isn't righted and he gets outed for whatever reason, right? And I think this really this brings up a pre- the Henri rumors were intriguing because I guess, as you've mentioned, it, 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 it wasn't the allure of having a name like that coming to manage your team isn't insignificant, isn't insignificant at all right and i think um just as how tyler kind of proved that the new york to leipzig pipeline kind of you know was very much healthy and alive you know i think the same's true Ooh, in a way and i didn't really quite make this connection until you mentioned it jesse marsh kind of does represent that for um the coaching side of things as well so not only are you kind of expanding the horizons for the amount of players that you can kind of bring in because you can point to Tyler Adams and you can, you can point to Tyler Adams. And you can point to Matt Miazga and say, you can go from the MLS. You can go from playing in MLS, I should say to the champions league. Um, if you do well, settle down, buckle and do your job here. And we can bring you there. It's interesting that we can now say that for a coach as well, as well. I think it's like, you know, I think and we talk about it in terms of a potential replacement. Like you kind of have to wonder where it is that they're going to draw it from. It seems that the arrow would be pointed to someone in Europe from what the uh, what is it the, the previous rumors have mentioned that it would indicate to me that the potential replacement for Chris Armis would kind of fall 
somewhere in the Red Bull Global Rolodex, right? Someone maybe that Ralph Ragnick would kind of be interested in giving, um, you know, a lot an audition to. Someone he potentially sees as a potential contributor to one of the European teams and they start out in New York. But I think to kind of harken back to what was mentioned earlier that, you know, when you talk about organizational health in general, that it would be kind of crazy, especially considering the amount of investment that was pumped into this organization specifically in regards to player development for them to walk away now. Because if you look at, because I think even in the absence of Jesse Marsh with the first team, I touched on this slightly earlier, when you looked at how every team from below MLS level was still playing the press and using player development as like sort of like their onus, right? And I think when you talk about where New York fits into the Red Bull Global hierarchy from here going forward is that, you know, I think I had a little bit on an earlier episode where I said the end goal for us is for us to become Red Bull's, you know, Salzburg, but in CONCACAF, Salzburg for the Americas, right? We're sort of this thing that I sort of saw the end vision being. And if you look at the way our organization is kind of set up, you know, it's like we're the only other club to my knowledge that kind of has the same setup that Salzburg has. You know, Salzburg can draw on Liefering where they kind of throw all these um, all these prospects in to try and churn them into something greater, right? And as a result of that, you know, they've it's paid dividends. The Salzburg, the Salzburg model with Liefering and churning players out of there has paid massive dividends, not just for Salzburg, but eventually for Leipzig as well. You know, like you have to look at guys like Amadou Haidara and um, was that? There was another name that I had, but it's kind of escaped me right now in terms of Salzburg to a Leipzig transfers. But yeah, players like Amadou Haidara who kind of started there. Um, proved themselves first at Leafering and then earned themselves a move to a cells, to a Leipzig down the line. Like, that's one way that the model works. We kind of have that in Tyler Adams now as well, proving that the New York model can kind of work as well. And you're starting to see with how much international signings that you're making for the Red Bull 2 organization that that seems to be the end goal of our organization. And it doesn't seem to me, based on that, that they'd be interested in walking away from this project at all, if that is the case. Especially since, as you mentioned, it's just yielded its first um, academy to Leipzig player in Tyler Adams. You know, it probably indicates to me that there might be more down the line. It's proof that the model does kind of work and is coming to fruition. And Red Bull 2 is going to be to us what Liefering is to Salzburg. You know, you can see the parallels between the two and say that that's partly the end goal. And that Brazil now is probably on that route as well, with Red Bull Brazil's youth teams feeding Red Bull Bragantino. You know, I think you're starting to see that model pop up all over the Red Bull global umbrella. So it'd be absolute madness if they walk away now. Yeah, we, we kind of, I feel like we, we talked about it a little bit last year where, you know, it felt like the most realized um, Ralph Ball team from top to bottom that, that, that we've seen, you know, 2015, 2016 and 2017 was really kind of just a slow build up to kind of get things in place to, to set up 2018 for what it was. But again, you know, look, 
no one's perfect. Rebel Global is not perfect. Leipzig is not perfect. Salzburg is not perfect. We certainly aren't, aren't perfect. This organization every year manages to find some absolutely absurdly ridiculous and hilarious uh, uh, stories for us. Um, but yeah, they're not perfect. You know, it's could Chris Armish just be um, a, just nothing more than just a, a simple mistake for this team? Sure. If we're even if he is, that doesn't mean that that's it. Like everything is, it's all gone. It's all over. Every every organization is allowed to to make to kind of make a mistake. If this is in fact a mistake, for all we know, you know, the, he ends up cracking Dakota at some point halfway into the season. And he leads us to glory. Um, it doesn't seem like that right now, but of course anything's possible. But for me, I guess the bigger point is so soon. Or, or so early into the season, again, it's what, seven, eight, seven or eight games into the season now? Um, out of 34 games, we still have the entire U.S. Open Cup uh, ahead of us, hopefully the playoffs if we do make it. There's still a lot of time to kind of see where things go. And even if it doesn't seem like it's going to make a, a, a positive enough turn to our liking, again, it happens. You know, just, just because they may have potentially made a mistake doesn't somehow – uh, mean everything is over. It doesn't negate everything. It doesn't suddenly change all the narratives for what this team has done. And it certainly, at least in my opinion, def- certainly doesn't mean that you know they weren't actually doing anything. And again, it was it was just this one guy who you know who they 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 brought in who managed to somehow create all this. So to me, it just seems uh, it just seems insane. No, I think I, don't, I, I certainly don't think you can pin everything on Jesse. Obviously, he. Um, he was successful, but also I think we, we, we're kind of rose-tinting Jesse's legacy. Um, 2015 was a, was a great run to the field. 2016 was a great turnaround from a very, very bad start. 2017 was, he just got lucky. 2017 was, was that 1-0 win over Cincinnati for a year. It was a season-long <laughs> yeah. 1-0 win over Cincinnati. We got to a cup final, and that saved that season from being basically a bust. Um, you know, that was that was the, the three shots on the post, you know, the, the, the equivalent of. Because you could – because those three shots didn't go in, none of those three shots went in, we got the win. You can look back and say, we won, three points, we move on. Because Jesse got – got us to a cup final, you look back on that season and say, well, they must have been worth something because they got to a cup final. Um, and then 2018 was phenomenal. Um, and he's getting all the credit for 2018, which I, I, I don't deny him. As I say, in my head, that's the way it plays out. Jesse gave us 2018, and Chris was just kind of along for the ride. And as soon as he tried to do something on his own, um, he, he ran the team into a wall. Um, so... It doesn't compute to me that you can say, you know, take Jesse Marsh out of the New York Red Bulls and there is no system left. There's no identity left. There's a new coach. He wants to do things in a slightly different way, not a radically different way, but it feels that way results-wise. And we'll see. I think the benefit he has... There's no doubt in my mind that Red Bull Global wants all its teams to be winning games. They want their teams to be regarded as among the best in their respective leagues. Where they part company with their fan bases is they don't think they need to spend at the top level to do that. 
because they think they're smarter than everybody else. Um, and in Salzburg, they 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 have reliably and repeatedly been smarter than everybody else and, and done some amazing things. They're kind of punching above their weight still, one could argue, in in Germany, given the constraints, their self-imposed constraints. Um, and there's an obvious and understandable frustration here with a team that's got off to a very, very bad start. Um, and that every year kind of sings the same old tune, which is that, you know, the the, the knockout competitions do not go well for us. Um, and a large portion of our fan base wants knockout competitions above all else. And then fair enough, you know, you, you root for the cups you want to root for. Um, so I, I don't think there has been, there's been a change of tempo on the field and a change of tempo dictated by the fact that we have a new coach. It's not a new system. It's, it's, it's not at all a new system. If Armas is replaced, the, the next coach through the door will do things a little differently still. But it will still be in the same overall context of the Red Bull Global system, which includes that system of play. Otherwise, there's no pipeline. There's no pipeline within our club, from our under-12s up to our first team. And there's no pipeline from, the Red, from New York to Leipzig or Salzburg. And at that point, then you would start to think, well, now Red Bull's just ready to sell up because they've they've lost the, the we don't fit into the picture anymore. But I think right now, we're two months away from the best we've ever been in terms of our value to the overall Red Bull project. So I don't see them walking away, um, which will be disappointing news to, to some. Um, and uh, ultimately, it just is what it is. They, they own the club, they run it, and they they don't have to look that far in the past to say we were doing the right thing. I I I do think uh, Lend brought up an interesting, uh, briefly an interesting question before of of you know. I, I guess I guess at this point it's kind of up to Chris for how long that leash ends up being. If if these results, I don't, I can't. I can probably convince myself that that there would be a midseason change, mostly centering around. Or mostly centered around, um, I guess, how pissed Rebel Global is at his handling of some of the potential pipeline investments, like uh, um, Jorgensen, like uh, Matthias, exactly both of them, really specifically. Um, where if if Adam, maybe I mean he's still really really young, but obviously there was a lot of rumblings, a lot of crazy shit happened with Gaku earlier this year, and and I. I get the i get this i get the feeling that that wasn't the last of it and this summer we might see some more drama again but regardless i can see there i could see pressure developing more because you know hey you have you know you have these two your your two biggest investments ever really kind of going nowhere and we don't like this we're going to make a change more than we're kind of just not getting the results and, and they feel like they need to replace the manager because of that. Now that's probably not what fans justify, but may not want to hear, but I, I get the sense that's probably more the reality than them doing a midseason change just because, you know, we're eighth or ninth in the table. Um, so with all that being said, regardless of whether uh, uh, Chris doesn't turn this around um, or if he does turn this around, but maybe it's just not enough, or there's other issues that they see where they just feel like, okay, it's time to move on from Chris, either again at some point in the season or, or at the end of the next season. Where do they go? 
I mean, I, I managed to convince myself of like some outlandish idea that maybe, uh, maybe Henri could be possible only if, because he's such a huge soccer nerd, they managed to convince him to like weaponize that for EDS, which piques my interest. If I'm being completely honest, weaponizing him for, for EDS is intriguing to say the least. I don't think that would ever happen, but that's really the only way I can, I can convince that actually happening. So really outside of that, I mean, who else, like who, who would come, who would be the new manager? Would it be Car? Would Carnell get the, the, a promotion? Would it be Wolniak? Would it be someone else? I honestly have no idea. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, to me, like, that's why I kind of went with this whole, like this, uh, um, what is it? This theory that it's just going to be some obscure, Guy coaching somewhere in the uh, Germanic countries that's on the Ragnarok Rolodex. Someone who just wants to have a closer look at and see what he does in a relatively safe testing ground on like MLS, right? Where there's kind of no fear of promotion and relegation and you're kind of uh, have a bit of a leeway to tinker, I think, at least for the opening part of the season, same way that Chris Armas has. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of all I really kind of have. Um, for that particular it'll line. it'll be yeah I would, I would expect it to be someone who makes us kind of scratch our head even if it isn't on resort where you scratch your head because you just don't understand why he as an individual would be interested in the project um they particular well much like with players the the whole system they back themselves to spot talent they back themselves to develop talent and that counts as, as much for coaches i think as it does for for players um the they they brought marco rose up um and gave him his shots and he got too hot hot for salzburg and and he's gone on his way and he's going to be replaced by jesse marsh who has the fans in salzburg scratching their head but they've got used to that they they're constantly presented (laughs) with managers who (laughs) um they they're used to that at, at this point we we got you know, a continuity selection. And I would guess that unless unless results really stay stubbornly bad and they they start to recognize that, you know, maybe the cratering of our attendances is related to the fact that, you know, it starts to be directly related to results, um, then then they might be persuaded to let Chris go early. But I think given the fact that you can you can usually keep hope alive um, in the season all the way to the end, as long as you're in the run for the playoffs. They might they might let him run through the whole year and make make a change at the end if if it just doesn't seem to be working out and it, it's it'll just be it'll be someone we're not expecting it'll be someone who who doesn't necessarily fill us with a great deal of confidence they might be an exciting name like an honoree um, because you know if you're going to be bad you may as well be bad in an interesting way and honoree <laughs> honoree fighting with <laughs> All the beat reporters and everyone in Austria would be a, a kind of fun change of pace. Henri versus Franco, oh God, right oh, into my veins. Oh, oh yeah, yes. let it happen. <laughs> Just the rogues gallery of New York, New York metro area, like sports journos versus Henri, the manager, would kind of be pressed for admission alone. Like I'd fly back to the U.S. Oh, we- and sign up for like season oh, tickets yeah. just for that. <laughs> 
a weekly two-minute video segment just Franco and Henri on the training yeah. ground? It would be amazing. The, the, the new All <laughs> Access, <laughs> and they basically become like UFC fight promos. Like, I'd be dead for that. Like, wouldn't even, wouldn't even, <laughs> wouldn't even an official website anymore. They would, they could just run that video once a week. It's going to be like the flagship series. Now that's really thinking in seven dimensions here. Like, not only are we like a soccer development organization, but like we're a fucking combat sports like uh, development organization as well. well I, I think we should celebrate and acknowledge the fact that the club, for all its all its seriousness and and professionalism and buttoned upness, does have a rare talent for generating interesting storylines. Yeah. So long may that continue. Yeah, I mean, certainly the scarcity of news we can generally contribute. There's that. never been a dull season. Yeah. For for a team that doesn't want to give anything away, there there rarely seems to be a dull moment. And and I but I think that kind of lends to it. I think in a weird way, if you look at some of the 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 weirdest uh, the weirdest things, the weirdest stories, especially in the off season, um, a lot of it I think has to do with the fact that they are so secretive. I mean, they could have easily come out, you know, a public and said, you know, look, we have no intention of, of, of transferring Kaku. Um, you know, we fired Pecky for these reasons. <laughs> um, you know, this is where Jesse actually was. You don't in fact have to wait for him to show up. Um, you know, just, just the stuff like that, you know, it, all those, all the weird stories we've heard over the year, the years it's, it's, become kind of lore just because of that secrecy you're almost uh it kind of lends itself to just creating your own theories and 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 fun stories and um kind of just your own bat shittery and it's just it's weird it's 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 frustrating in a lot of ways but i guess if you don't take all of this seriously and you realize it's just a fucking sport um it's it's actually pretty funny it's people like it's it's like anything else it's people turning up trying to do the best job they can and things happen that they didn't plan for or hoped wouldn't happen and you know they have to come to work tomorrow so they 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 can't laugh about it but we can <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah and 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 i've and I've, I've said this before that you know it's not just here you know leipzig and 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 not so. I'm not sure so much about Salzburg. I, I I kind of feel like Salzburg kind of just runs on autopilot at this point. At least just the vibe I get, and it's it kind of hard to get as much access to media uh, as as even like Leipzig. But Leipzig is also very uh, secretive and and um, kind of like their relations with the media and stuff. I mean, oh, it's, it's, it's across the whole organization. Yeah, yeah, and and it's funny though because in some ways you see them try to control narratives but it's kind of hard to do that when you are so secretive you know leipzig i, I always i bring this up on occasion because it's still funny as hell to me but um you know there was a whole thing that happened with um i forgot what what uh news organ what for i forgot what publication but there was a whole thing with leipzig uh, i think uh oliver the oliver or ralph did like this long extensive interview and they wanted they like they they wanted to get a copy of it. They kind of ran through it and they said, "No, remove all these things and and you can keep these things." To the point where they ended up just like scrapping the whole interview or some crazy thing like that. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think that was a Rangnick interview. Although they, I mean, to his credit, he it was a great interview a few years back um, when Leipzig was just sort of threatening the Bundesliga and a German magazine asked to interview him and very openly said, you know, we're hostile to your whole project. 
Um, and he gave them a ton of time and they wrote a huge piece, um, and there, which was basically just an argument between him and his interviewer. A polite, cordial argument. That would be a very Ragnick thing to do, um, actually, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, He's a true but, believer. Yeah. But it's it's definitely interesting, though. Like again, it, it's definitely not just here. It, it's the the weird secrecy for for everything is definitely uh, an organization wide thing. I mean, I, I don't. They don't seem to have attendance issues, at least in uh, in Leipzig. So I don't know if they had similar attendance issues. If they would be so, um, you know, if they would be seeing tarps and stuff like that, and kind of the secrecy around there, even though they have at this point openly said what the tarps are for. But I mean, Salzburg, you know, they they get seven, eight, nine, ten thousand people in their twenty six and a half thousand or twenty nine thousand seat stadium, and it doesn't seem to kind of like really bother anyone over there. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just different things that you kind of hear. Uh, you hear complaints about with with you know, I guess some of the communication, um, and some things they say really dark. They say really stay really quiet on some things. They kind of uh, vaguely brush on, but yeah, just as, as a whole, the secrecy and, and, and kind of just, uh, the nonchalantness about a lot of stuff is, is definitely not just unique to here. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I don't really have anything more to add to that. So, um, I don't know, does uh, anyone have anything else they want to add or should we just move on to, uh, questions at this point to kind of wrap this whole episode up? Let's, let's have a go at the questions. All right. So, yeah, as you notice, we're, uh, we we ha- we haven't previewed the Galaxy game, so it kind of comes down. So I can do I can do one really quick for you guys. Slaton, okay? Questions. Um, <laughs> first one coming from uh, KC Jones at Grateful Shed twenty three. Thanks again for the question, KC. Uh, Laid had one of, if not the best game of his career. I'm happy for him. He works hard, and Lord knows he's taken a ton of shit from the end of last year to now. That being said, what does that really mean for the team when he's the difference maker on the night? We need more. And I think as we mentioned at the top of the episode, yeah, I mean, like, the thing is, is that, like, uh, what we saw against Cincinnati is that it didn't really quite address a lot of the uh, issues that we've seen plague the team so far, right? Guards to, like, generally the lack of creativity, um, the lack of ability to constantly generate high-quality chances, um... And um, as well as just trying to be a bit more, I, be a bit more, I think, aggressive in winning second to third balls in midfield and starting that transition well. But I guess one confounding variable potentially is the fact that Kaku wasn't available for this game, you know, and he's a huge part in uh, generating a lot of chances for this team. Um, you could say that, you know, I think he hasn't quite had the greatest of starts to the season, even before his uh, suspension for, um, apparently murdering that poor dude by beheading him on live television <laughs> in Kansas City. But um, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, he's still the main creative hub for this team. And even if, even though he kind of started slow, like the offense just doesn't really tick as much without him. And even in Kansas City, like he was starting to find a lot of that groove back, you know, like playing in Murillo on the right wing in the first half. And banging his first assist of that se- of, the, of the season with that uh, cross into Brian White. I mean, it's true that we definitely need more. I think there are some pieces on the roster, depending on how you fit them all together, that could potentially provide us the answer. But I also think that in order to properly solve the midfield issue, you may potentially need to bring in a specialized defensive midfielder 
to add a little bit more bite and steal and winning second and third balls again in the center of the pitch. I'd agree with that. I'd also say, though, that the the silver lining to that performance was, was as a team, was Laid's part in it because the future success of this team um, this season and moving forward, I would argue, um, is going relies less on the ability to identify you know, superhuman prospects like Kimar and Tyler, um, and more on the ability to get the best out of the the players that you're going to have to put around them, um, and the players you're going to have to hold things down when they're not available. Um, and if Chris has started to figure out how to get the best out of the likes of Connor Laid, um, who can absolutely do a job for the team as as he proved. Um, and has proved, you know, again and again. Um, but it's not—it's not, not going to be a Kamar level job. Um, you know, you have—you have to make adjustments. You have to let him play to his limitations. Um, and if you—if you're able to do that and get good, get strong performances out of the likes of Laid, then you can—then you can get back to the consistency that we want from the team. So that's the encouraging thing. That you know, maybe maybe Chris has started to to realize um, how to get that done. Um, I don't, it shouldn't be such a mystery to him. He, watched, he worked with Jesse on doing it for you know, the last three or four years. Um, and it always seems to come down uh, mostly to that question. What do you do when Kimar's hurt? What do you do when Kimar's not around? Who, who, who plays left back? Or who, how do you deal with the wing backs? Um, when really the only guy who knows how to play wing, who's physically capable physically and mentally capable of playing wing-back, full-back the way you want people to, isn't around. Um, and Laid is al- almost always the answer in some shape or form. Um, weirdly, they, they almost every season seem to start from scratch uh, with the idea that maybe, maybe this is the year that Connor can be superhuman and then he isn't. And then they kind of figure out a way to, to get him playing to his strengths and, and things stabilize a little. So hopefully that's where we are. In the cycle. Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned before, you know, kind of that. Yeah, I mean, cr- credit to Chris for for finding a way to uh, finding a way to use him the best he the best he could. You know, like 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 you just said, you know, you're not gonna. There is no Kamar like player uh, on 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 the team really at all. I, I thought maybe you can get something out of that with Duncan, but no we 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 have seen that he just can't work as a as a left back so yeah i mean you know finding finding ways to 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 use your depth guys um to to get results is really what what is going to make or break the season i mean look that's what made our season last year you know we rotated quite a bit and and the reason why we got those results like a four nothing win against against portland is because you know we were able to kind of raise the floor of of our players by putting them in their best possible position and, and putting them in a, in a position to, to succeed and, and get results. So if this is, if we're starting to see now Chris Armour's been able to do that. That's great, but it is true. I mean, you know, laid laid was a difference and, and he was the only goal. Um, he kind of redeemed himself from that goal, from that, that horrendous miss against, uh, uh, against uh, Santos, uh, you know, uh, in the champions league where he managed to be, uh, to hit the ball like 50 feet to the right of the post on the opposite side. So he redeemed himself, which is awesome. But yeah, 
that that's who gave you the goal and you had three posts uh three post hits for for Cincinnati so we got a little luck at that game so it's concerning but you know it, it's it's still unfortunately kind of a wait and see I mean, do we, with, do uh, we, with results do we know what's wrong with Kamal do we have any idea uh, so that's kind of part of the whole thing with like the weirdness <laughs> of like kind of the secrecy and, and everything cuz i mean it went from it went from an illness or at least officially it's an illness if you look at all the injury reports but and i think at some point it was verbally mentioned that he had like the flu or something but then it was also mentioned that he had a hamstring problem so we still have no idea what the actual problem is i mean he's he's had something since what last november yeah <laughs> yeah well well we found out in just one random sentence in like some article from from butler that he apparently had knee surgery which which was a awesome way to find that out um and that's when i think a lot of people kind of tempered their expectations as far as when he'd be back and really what we would see and then he was then we saw him for 45 minutes then he disappeared my my going theory is he having had two knee surgeries it happens sometimes you feel great you know, the next day or a couple hours later, you, you your knee feels like it's going to explode, and you're just not you're not as good as you thought you were. And then we he was basically dead for a couple of weeks, um, and then all of a sudden he was you know fine for uh, for that game uh, with Jamaica, and then it's kind of back to you know he's dying but not completely dead because at least he was on the bench. Uh, I don't well, know, it's weird. We, we know we know he's the sort of guy who, if, if he's called on or if he gets the chance to make the decision himself, he'll play. Um, and you know, his maybe his his part of his problem is that his I, I think he doesn't get enough credit for how intelligent his game is. So he doesn't he's not as reliant on his physical gifts as people think he is. It's the way he reads the game yeah. that that allows him to do so many extraordinary yeah. things. Um, which I think means that he's the sort of guy who maybe feels he can compensate for a little physical weakness here or there. Um, so maybe the club is taking a longer-term view of his physical condition than his country is, um, which might explain why he popped up for Jamaica. That's true. There was also that, that uh, what was it, 2016 or 2017, where he kind of had a bad start to the year, and it turned out that... Um, uh, it turned out that he was kind of nursing an injury for most of that first half, and and um, I think I think the, the 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 manager from Jamaica kind of like pushed down on him a little bit, saying like you know you have to do better than that. You can't just kind of force yourself to play oh, or whatever. So yeah, I think that he got was sent yeah, that was camp. yeah. He 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 was chastised heavily by his by by his coach at, at that point for turning up injured. Um, I think the implication was if he'd let them know that he was he was injured, they might even have been able to kind of salvage a roster spot. Um, but he will he will play if he's if he's given an opportunity. And and I would guess at this point, the Red Bulls know him better than anyone else, so they they have a better sense of how to manage his his physical recovery. Yeah, it might, um, it might just be like a really like stringent precautionary thing because they know that he's the type of guy who is just gonna, as you say, like play no matter what. Even at the behest of his own uh, physical, like um, his own well-being, really. And I guess if it's a hardline yeah. measure to prevent himself from, like you know, dis- self-destructing physically on the field, then I guess sometimes you got to do the hardline measure. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, because once he's, I mean, the role he plays and the amount of ground he has to cover, and and the way we take for granted that 
other fullbacks should be able to do that. Um, it's uh, it, it's got to be punishing. Yeah. Sorry, um, I distracted from the questions. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good. It's good. <laughs> no. we're, we're we're adding. Col- this is it's on this podcast. Like we never really like um what is it um really st- we, we we end up like creating questions like halfway through answering other people's questions and we end up answering those anyway. <laughs> so, um, next one comes from a two pack from Enabong Ephraim. Thanks, Ben Mindstan, for sending this to you. And what's the connection like between Oliver and Dennis? How often are they talking? Well, well, I'm sure they uh, keep in touch over WhatsApp pretty, pretty closely. But I guess what it, I, guess, I mean, I guess when it comes to uh, regards, I have this to, vision of like a, a a Red Bull global group chat, what group WhatsApp chat, and Chris is the only one on there who doesn't speak German. <laughs> It's like 40% of Jesse like posting whatever he's doing in Germany that week. Um, Trudel! Trudel. Self-easy. Like, saying, like, I was at a, I, I, like, at some club uh, doing, doing, like, ecstasy and looking at, like, underground murals and shit all around Berlin for whatever reason. It's just him trying to, trying to talk to to, to Adams and Adams just saying like dad leave me alone it's like Jesse I speak English <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, like, he's like Steve McLaren when he uh, when Steve McLaren was I think um Twente manager in the Netherlands and he had only been there for about two months before he uh, faked a Dutch accent in his interviews like a Dutch English speaking <laughs> accent was one of the most bizarre things I can remember but I mean, when it comes to the connection between Oliver and Dennis, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Dennis does his job with like the idea of implementing the strategy from global in New York, right? Like he's involved in identifying players that fit the structure, fit the system and bringing them in while also ensuring that the same's done for Red Bull too. So, I mean, like, maybe it's not as hands-on. I don't think Mitzlaff really has the time in his schedule to micromanage the various sporting directors at throughout the Red Bull organization. But I'm sure he checks in, like, every, like, maybe, like, once a month, frequently enough to kind of get a gauge on how progress is going and seeing what the needs will be for the organization. So, I mean, I don't really have a thumb on how often they talk, but I'd imagine that they keep in touch pretty regularly. So think, they, they kind of have a idea of what's going on on the floor in New York. I think on the, on the sly, Oliver is still doing three jobs. There was, a, there was a time when they were decoupling from Salzburg that theoretically he was only the CEO of Leipzig and he had no formal role in any other part of the organization. But I, I think it's... It's strongly suspected that um, he really only has to be separated from Salzburg because it's only UEFA that they're worried about. So he still has control, overall control of the of the rest of the kind of global soccer organization, which he's combining with his role as Leipzig CEO, and which he's combining with this this sort of expansionist push that they have going at the moment, where they're trying to. They're trying to market Leipzig more heavily around the world and establish a kind of presence in China and maybe India. Um, 
and it's a little hard to discern, but it, one gets the impression that may not be a strictly Leipzig marketing push. That may, might be a broader kind of Red Bull global push. So I feel like Mincy's very much stretched thin. There may be particular projects that get his attention because they are important to Leipzig. For example, I'm sure he was very heavily involved with Tyler Adams and with the whole getting Jesse over. Um, but, you know, they, other than that, my guess is that he probably looks at the big picture, how the club is performing and, you know, what budgets are and, and how they are meeting their kind of commercial targets and their playing targets. So it's probably a fairly perfunctory relationship at this point between him and Dennis. Like, you know, here's how we're doing until the next big yeah. project comes along. Yeah, it would, I would, I would love to know what that, that, um, I guess that that connection relationship uh, is now. I mean, there's enough evidence from even last year to kind of point that it was that Oliver's relationship to just his organization as a whole was was pretty tight. I mean, unless something changed, the last article I saw, uh, the last article I saw referring to Oliver as, um, I think they put it as like the uh, the New York Rebels ownership representative so base like he was kind of the guy at the table when it came anytime you hear these 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 you know media guys talking about you know the ownerships and the ownership representatives or whatever talking about whatever rules and nonsense that they talk about um it was they were it was oliver so i mean i don't know if that's changed since then and if it's not him i have no idea who it would have been uh who those keys kind of would have been would have been given to so i would imagine if that's the case but if he is you know, kind of really at the absolute highest level of, of managing for, for us, I would, I would imagine they would be communicating um, fairly often. I, I don't, I guess I'm also interested in how that relationship was in context of Jesse and just how deeply like kind of in tune Jesse was with the whole rebel global versus Chris, where I feel like he's maybe not. Um, But yeah, I mean, Oliver is definitely, Again, at least as of I think it was sometime beginning of last year or end of 2017, he was mentioned as, as uh, you know, kind of the 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 guy who kind of intermediate between the ownership and and MLS. So, yeah, well, I, mean, I mean he's he's got to have some kind of of and he was he also yeah actually wasn't it last year when he flew down, uh, when he flew in to 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 kind of do the finishing touches for um, uh, for the change to to Chris Armas. Yeah, and 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 I mean the the relationship surely has to be a little different because there's got to fundamentally be a difference between you know for the last eighteen months we now know they were basically planning Jesse's move um, with all the courses and presumably trying to figure out when the right time for him to make that jump would be, um, and also they've been they've been working or they've been working on getting Tyler to sign with Leipzig at, at the right time. Um, so we know that would sort of fairly intensively draw on Minslav's time and, and, and energy, but I don't get the impression that he is dictating things to New York in quite the way that the rumor mill would have it. Like I, I, it didn't make much sense to me that Minslav would be saying, okay, we've signed Thierry Henry to be your next coach. Here you go. Um, I'm not sure that's quite how the relationship works. And, um, I get the impression that we have uh, the the ability to make the decisions that are right for us within that within that broader context. 
um, of, of how it kind of moves the group forward. Um, so then you get these little outliers like, like Jorgensen, who appears to be us kind of dipping a toe in the European player development market, which obviously Red Bull's already heavily involved in. Um, so I don't know if that was a, a mince laugh play. Um, clearly, it came out of the, the Red Bull scouting structure, um, but it came out of Dennis's budget, so he would need to find room for that. So they, they, I don't, I don't think they're less close than they were when Jesse was around. I would, I would be surprised if that were the case. But the, if anything, it's more that the Jesse and his plans and the plans they had for him, uh, for a while, we probably were closer than we are now, just because there was, the there were these two hooks in the New York side, the Adams and Marsh. They were both coming over, and so and so Leipzig was a little more aligned with us at that point. Yeah, um, and then Fernando, you have anything to add to this, or should we move on? No, I, I guess I, I guess I, I wonder who, who would, who would I guess ultimately be in charge of doing the hiring, firing uh, of of any of the manager side. You know, is does Dennis have the power to, to kind of say, okay, enough, you know, you're done, Chris, and bring someone else in, or if that's kind of decision higher up, and if it's not Oliver, then I guess who else would it be? Yeah, they haven't they haven't made any. They even when they said that. Um, Mintzloff had stepped down and was no longer head of Red Bull Global, which they had to do to, to get UEFA's blessing. Um, they didn't say who replaced him. <laughs> yeah, it, it seemed like a, it, was, it was like a retitling, if anything. So it kind of really yeah. he seemed like... Well, I guess which the, pres- the Red Bull way. Yeah. I mean, we did it with our academy, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, uh, just unceremoniously uh, dumping the academy director like halfway through the playoffs was a pretty interesting move. As was dumping the head of scouting and posting the uh, job posting, I think on LinkedIn or something. Like, oh no, like it was on a job portal either way. So, um, yeah. Well, I think with regards to like making decisions on who hires and fires, like the only precedent that we have in this era is the fact that the manager succeeded in getting the sporting director fired in 2017, right? And that's why. I think the way we've kind of seen it is that um, Jesse won the power struggle between him and Ali Curtis in 2017. And that involved kind of going, uh, you know, to the higher powers to get it done. And behind that, um, he installed Dennis Hamlet as a, you know, I think, um, you know, the successor to Ali Curtis in his stead to try and bring in players that I think Jesse wanted and so I guess we're kind of in uncharted territory there as well. It kind of does make me think that anything regarding managerial decisions actually does go up to a higher decision. And Dennis is kind of only really there more on the player procurement side so far. Like I'm not really sure if he's the one who signed off on Chris Armas being brought in to replace him either. Um, as that seems like that came from Global as well, because Mitzlav had to kind of sign off on it, coming flying in to kind of interview Armis and then deciding that he's the one going forward. So that's where it kind of stands for me. I think it does kind of seem like it rises with a higher authority in regards to management changes. So I think that kind of brings us to our uh, next question, the second of this uh, two-pack. Is it possible that RBNY can hit the African pipeline that Red Bull Salzburg has hit so well? And I think initially, my first reaction to this was I think that they were kind of more interested 
and using leafering to develop their African prospects. But then, you know, I think the Jorgensen signing really kind of threw a curveball into all this, uh, all these things about, I think, where they're looking with regards to the talent that they can develop. And it seems to me that they're going to be developing, I think, talent throughout the organization where there's an organizational fit or where there's an open spot, right? So I think, um, you know, Salzburg has nailed the African pipeline. The amount of guys that they managed to uh, just, you know, like pick from, pluck from out of nowhere to just turn into absolute like studs has to be absolute, has to be commended, definitely. And, you know, I think I think it's the Jurgensen signing is an interesting precedent, as I mentioned, because I don't rule it out. So, like, say that they pluck someone, and they have shown in the past that they were interested in bringing in players from Africa to develop at Red Bull 2, right? Like, you had Hassan and Don from Senegal. You had Zumanis and Barra. You had, um, what was that, Wahab Akwe last season, the Ghanaian center back. He was there for a while as well. And now, even now, I guess, you know, technically, Jean-Christophe Kofi is, is from Africa, even though he grew up in the U.S. So now you have uh, this Ivorian fella developing down at Red Bull, too. So you definitely see um, Africa as being a very interest, as a market of interest for our team, right? So you can definitely see that there's always been, you know, a very, there's always been a bit of an African presence um, at up and down New York's uh, organizational structure. It's just that none of them so far, for whatever reason, have really hit first team level yet. But it seems that Kofi seems to be in a position where he's going to be the guy or he's going to be one of the first where that happens. And I wouldn't rule out um, future more African prospects joining Red Bull 2 at the pipeline in the future. We've been trying, clearly. Um, it just hasn't really worked out. Um, I guess the rainbow pipeline has maybe run dry at this point. Um, and we don't seem to be uh, acquiring prospects from, from that channel um, in the way that we used to. Um, and maybe that sort of put us at odds with whatever um, sort of Red Bull proper scouting system in in africa was because they you know while while they were kind of raiding was it mali's under 17s and under 20s that they got haidara and um there's another guy they have as well at salzburg um from and while they were doing that we were you know we we was we were mining rainbow we had uh a yongo and Obakop and a bong and uh and then indam is technically a rainbow signing um oh yeah and and that's just I mean Rainbow's just just an agency, isn't it? Um, yeah. So uh, and 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 it's sort of its own scouting network and and somewhat interesting and avant-garde player contracting system. Um, so I I would say it's possible. Um, and not only is it possible, but it, there's a lot of evidence that they've been trying. They they you know they got Akwai. Simpara was part of the same. Uh, wasn't he part of the same Malian group as Haidara? Um, yeah, just I, to... yeah, I think so. I believe so. Uh, there was another kid, a DAD Samaseko. That's the that guy. Yeah. Um, and they just they just haven't worked out for whatever reason. I wouldn't count Kofi in the same uh, 
bracket because you know that's a that's a sort of in, intra MLS pickup, um, and I wonder whether they maybe have reasoned that they're you know maybe maybe there are some issues there maybe they're not as good at making these these guys feel comfortable um, when they're not sort of acclimated to to living in America. Um, so they're maybe they've they've backed off a little bit for that reason. Kofi doesn't doesn't fit that at all. Kofi's grown up in America. Um, he's for all intents, you know, he's an American player um, who just happens to have been born somewhere else. Yeah, I guess you know. I think it, it kind of harkens back to this whole idea for me that you never really know where you're looking to bring in talent from, which is what I think what kind of makes following this club so fascinating is that not only are you kind of tracking guys for the senior team, but considering the pipeline between Red Bull two and the first team, you're also tracking guys from all over the place, potentially for the two team. You know, I think that's what made a uh, guys like a, what is it? Edgardo Rito is such an interesting signing. I think this off season, cause it kind of just came out of nowhere, you know, like a little, um, little signings from elsewhere. Um, not just in North America, but in South America as well. In fact, the only place I think that we haven't um, incorporated anyone yet in the New York uh, fabric is from Asia, really. And so far, they've seemed to be a bit more interested in sending all the uh, Korean and Japanese prospects that they have to Leafering, where they start. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, I wouldn't rule out if they find the right guy who has an organizational fit if you potentially see some of those guys coming our way as well, you know, I mean, I wouldn't exactly rule it out either. Yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're buying two and a half million dollar, 18 year olds now, then the, the, the world's our oyster, um, which is why Jorgensen, I think is a really important signing. Um, not whether he does anything or not. The question is whether that speaks to a different sort of ambition within the club. Um, is he a one-off or do they have that kind of money to spend on uh, another teenager next year? Uh, Tam's definitely made a big difference in that. Um, Daniel, do you have anything yeah. to add? Or... No, I mean, I, I, I think that's a, that was a good point that, um, you know, both actually about Tam and, 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 and Jurgensen, those kind of signings are just so much easier to do. You know, look, he costs a little bit more money than what Verone did. And Verone was, was this, you know, big RGDP. And here, here Jurgensen is, you know, starting again for our reserve, for our second team. So just the, the, the naming conventions, the, the, the name, the, the, the player designation that the arbitrary designation MLS hands, um, I think has kind of changed things and it's kind of changed the, the pressure and, and a little bit off of, uh, at least in some, in, in some ways from those kind of signings. And, and yeah, I mean, if, if, uh, if, if we start seeing more signings like that, even if it's not two and a half, it's, if it's one and a half or 2 million or whatever, then yeah, that 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 certainly shows that that um, I guess there's more faith in in our side for uh for that kind of development and and you know to to final point earlier last year plays a big part of that. So um, as far as uh, the pipelines, yeah, Salzburg has definitely tapped I think into pretty much everywhere you can imagine at this point. <laughs> um, definitely more than we have. So I. I I would love to see them kind of expand the, the pipeline here a little bit more. Um, but there's definitely certain areas where I, I, I guess maybe 
MLS kind of becomes more prohibitive than than the club's ambition. Um, and I think we kind of saw a little bit of that with with Jurgensen. Getting an eighteen year old from from Europe is not easy just because of MLS, not because of of of, of you know any any uh, ambitious questions with uh, regards to this specific team. Um, so, you know, maybe with, maybe as things kind of change, we're able to kind of spread out a little bit more and, and kind of dip our toes into, uh, into different, different areas and, you know, specifically the African pipeline. Yeah, we, we've tried, but this, I feel like this team, I feel like if there's one big difference between, uh, like off the field, I guess, difference between uh, New York compared to Leipzig and Salzburg is we don't seem to do anywhere near as good of a job of kind of making these international players really really welcome um i mean i know i know salzburg has like a dedicated team of like people who their sole job is to like get these new international international guys like totally comfortable and it definitely seems like we kind of have those issues where these international guys like they just don't they don't settle in as as comfortably as maybe they should or definitely not as comfortably as they should uh compared to the other rebel teams we saw that with verone uh, it seems like like Aku had a little bit of an issue with that. We've seen a whole slew of other players with those issues. So, yeah, I mean, I I think before we start maybe can, before we start thinking about where we can extend the pipeline, maybe we should start questioning a little bit more. You know, can this organ how can this organization better prepare themselves for those pipelines? Yeah, yeah, we do we do seem to have an issue with with helping foreign players settle, but it's a it's a youth world cup year, isn't it? So, um. The Red Bull Scouts are out there, and we are, as 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 I said before, we're as close and as successful a part of the system as we've ever been. So maybe we get access to a higher caliber of prospect. Yeah, that would be kind of exciting, actually. That is a good point with all the various youth tournaments coming up in the coming years. Uh, I think uh, the Olympics might be kind of like a bit too high of an age group, but we have seen you know twenty two, twenty three year olds come in to the system to kind of be developed into something greater than the sum of their parts. So between the under 20 world cup this year and the Olympics coming up next year, you know, I think you could definitely start to have a lot of close looks coming from very high caliber prospects at international level who may potentially be coming to help contribute here. So yeah, it'd be pretty interesting to keep on your radar. And maybe this is the time to give that shout out to, to, is it Omri Etienne? Our, ATN, uh, yeah. <laughs> daughter on the Haiti U-17s that the Rebels seem to be determined to ignore at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the subtweets have been coming hard from uh, that one account, haven't they, about Omri Etienne? Um, well, you, you, you've, got, you've got to defend your corner, then. But if it's already bad enough with one of them, like, can you imagine like how like how obnoxious that account's going to get with two of them on the roster with, uh, with the various, like, the Hydra that seems to be behind that account, like just going ham every time something happens down at academy level that basically I mean, if, no one has any access to. If we could have like six Etiennes on the team and Henri as manager, I would I would never stop watching Red Bull Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would turn on Etienne Baller's like tweet alerts, actually, like, just, just for that. That could be the second aspect of the of the pro- programming. You just give the Etienne family their like their their segment, and then you have Franco and Henri on the training ground, and and that's it. <laughs> just just get the Red Etienne Stuff family Rebel like their own reality TV show, like keeping up keeping up with the Kardashians, but keeping uppies with the Etiennes, you know, 
stuff like <laughs> that. I'm, I'm, I mean, we still need we need to develop a, a women's side so that we can rescue Derek's sister. Oh yeah, that's great. Fletcher's of NYCFC, or Ooh. she's just going to have to do it the hard way and break into the first team on the men's side, yeah. which would be fun. <laughs> Uh, this is why Red Bull needs to buy Sky Blue, if you ask me. Um, yeah, I'm going to push that agenda. <laughs> as well as tell the Red Bull scouts heading to these youth tournaments to ha- keep a very close eye on Team Japan in these upcoming tournaments because, my goodness, they are so fun to watch, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, in any case, so I guess we'll move on to the last question in the mailbag from Alex Chang, friend of the show host of you from 202 uh, with the conceit that we are part of a larger overarching strategy from Red Bull who want to implement a common philosophy across clubs globally, knowing that there is room for innovation, Jesse Marsh's three back line. Have you seen any other experimentation that might hit RBNY? And I would argue that we're all, we're trying to see an implementation of one tactical wrinkle at the current, as we mentioned at the top of the episode. The innovation in question is like some of those quick possession sets that Salzburg were throwing out, right? Like I think definitely some Marco even Rosen- their formation, even their formation of four four two diamond. Yeah, no, I mean you definitely see Marco Rose's like fingerprints all over Armis's iteration of um, this New York team. It just hasn't really paid off yet because I don't know if a we have the personnel to pull it off, and b if the manager really has the same grasp of the balance that Marco Rose ended up like developing with Rene Maric at the side. But I guess you could see that in, you know, the 4-4-2 diamond, as you mentioned, the four tw- or the 4 triple 2 whatever it seemed to be. You know, I think you definitely see those uh, Rose innovations coming into play here quite a fair bit more. But I can't really think of anything else that's particularly, like, striking throughout the Red Bull organization right now. Like, does anyone have anything come to mind for any of you guys? Nothing that's popped in popping into my head, um, but it's a, it's a fair question that you know the 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 system is always in motion, so there's always something up. Um, whether it's coming from the 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 coach of you know the current coach of the first team, you know whatever Armas has dreamed up, um, or them borrowing from around the system. I'm curious to see um, since since Chris seems to uh, uh, I guess be willing to toy with the five and a back a little bit more. Um, I'm curious to see if we see a little bit of a five, what is it? A five, three, two. Um, I, we, I've seen a couple of times with, uh, with Leipzig in the last maybe month or two. I think uh, it's going to be interesting as well, I guess, from a global perspective to see kind of what takes to see this next iteration of this Leipzig team. Once Julian Nagelsmann takes over, and I guess at the Salzburg level as well, to see what Jesse Marsh does with, in the wake of the work of arguably the most successful non-Ragnick coach that's been seen um, throughout the organization in Marco Rose. Like how much Jesse strays from the Rose blueprint or how much he tries to add like elements of his own philosophy, I think, to try and emulate what Marco Rose did in Salzburg. So that's a really interesting... I think you're going to just get more of a sample, I think, on what is and what isn't um, on further, you know, I think variations and additions to the high pressing system in the coming, you know, uh, months, if not years. So I think once you kind of 
have a wider body of work to kind of draw from. You kind of, you, you'd have a better idea of what can and what can't work with the system. Because right now, I don't think we've really strayed too far away from the bread and butter of it, right? Just the Ragnik high press. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, th- th- for me, there's a difference between just not pressing at all and and trying to press um, maybe with a different part with with trying to press and failing and and trying to press maybe a little bit differently and 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 still and still failing it's like i mentioned before i mean you, you hear if you actually hear chris talk um about a lot of these games he's still very much talking about you know being a high energy high pressing team you know attacking playing fast playing quick but you definitely hear these other small little tidbits that make it clear that he is trying to do something differently. And, and from what we see, it, the, the, the most direct comparison is Salzburg. Because we know that, that you know, I've seen so many games before where teams are playing direct, where teams are, are, are hitting long balls and, and they're, 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 they're switching fields diagonally uh, the way Columbus uh, uh, used to do to us a lot. Um, he just – he found a way to deal with it in a very, very successful way. And, and that's why they were as successful um, uh, this year as they were and, and, and last year. So, you know, again, we don't know, we don't know where the difference is. We don't know if, if, if this just can't be done because of personnel, because Armist just doesn't have the grasp of it, but there are definitely some similarities. Uh, I think that we've seen in the beginning of this year of Chris trying to maybe pull from, from the other clubs. And I'm definitely curious to see if, if we start seeing more of that, you know, again, I, I've seen Leipzig play this like weird five, three, two, a couple of times. Maybe we see that a little bit. Maybe we see um, uh, just a full on switch to the, to the three, six, one. Maybe there's something else, you know, that he's got up his sleeve. Maybe we go back to the four, triple two or the four, four, two diamond. And there's one of the advantages of being kind of in this larger, I guess, family of, of, of uh, clubs under the rebel global umbrella is there are so many resources that he can't tap into, you know, he's not going to get uh, resistance. If he gives Jesse a call and says, dude, I need a little bit of help. You know, I'm, I'm sure he has, I'm sure there, there's enough uh, uh, lines of support that Chris can go to if he, if he felt he needed it. Um, or maybe if they're offering, you know, uh, some support and ideas to, to kind of mix things up. Um so yeah, I mean, it's one of the, one of the, one of the many things that we just kind of have to wait and see. I think we're we're underselling Chris Armas' genius, and he really is the 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 tactical innovator in the in the Red Bull family right now because what he is doing is he he is planning tactics for games that we haven't played yet. He is trying to win a game that we're not going to play until October or November, and and that's that's quite the tactical innovation it's not it's not about today's game or tomorrow's game it's about a cup final several months ahead that we may not qualify for if he doesn't get things figured out soon it's very uh what is it it's very it's very anime isn't it like i just kind of punk the whole first half of the season with the expectation of uh winning things in the second half like i definitely see in that in the annals of a soccer manga out there to i think chris 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 is just taking like the first, the, the the second half of that Cincinnati game, and overlaying it on tape of the Atlanta first leg, and he's like, "This is this is near perfect. This matches up." <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that's what they do in the video, in like the in the three hour long video sessions that they mentioned them having. 
is actually just Armas kind of having like juxtaposing the first half over that Atlanta first half and saying, "Yes, yes, this is." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's funny though because there is a there is kind of an interesting parallel here with with even Jesse with kind of being traumatized in some ways with uh, with a failed playoff run because. If you guys remember in 2015, you know Dax very vocally criticized Jesse for not having a plan B against uh, against Columbus, and that, at least in theory, for a lot of people, was was kind of what was behind Chris uh, Jesse's Galaxy Brain moments, um, and him him even also you know trying certain things in certain games to to I guess find a plan B to find ways to 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 deal with teams either breaking the press or bypassing the press. And he kind of stumbled into um, the idea of, well, just find more ways to press. Um, This is kind of in a weird way, the same with, with Chris, where he, uh, maybe he's still kind of uh, a scarred from, from 2015 and 2016 and 2017. And the, and then he kind of had his own scarring moment in Atlanta where now he's kind of like, that's kind of what he's like super focused on more than, more than really just kind of regular season results is, you know, maybe in a weird way that kind of, um, I kind of confirmed to him that, yeah, this team still doesn't have like this ultimate plan B against teams that, um, that just find a way to completely bypass, uh, bypass the press who are able to completely absorb it and who just have no intention of actually playing at all. What do you do in these moments? And so, yeah, it, for me, that's just a, kind of a loose parallel to, to, to Jesse, but they obviously handle it differently, but they also had, I guess, different situations um, uh, after, you know, those, those, those playoff moments. Yeah. But it's, it's, as you say, it's the, it's the same story more or less. Um, and, and Chris has been there on the sidelines for the whole, the whole show. Um so it's not it's not new to him, uh, and and he's hoping that he figures it out and that maybe you know we lose five three to the galaxy, but that that turns out to be the perfect game he's been looking for that would have beat Tata last year, and we can finally turn the page. <laughs> yeah, um... I think that's where I am now. I think we 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 need Chris Armas to get the catharsis he is seeking, so that the team can just move forward and start to play play again yeah no definitely for sure um yeah i mean i don't really have more to add to that so um yeah i think does anyone else or should... nope. yeah i guess that kind of nope. does it for us here i mean we hope he gets that catharsis against uh the galaxy i mean wouldn't it be something to beat the galaxy with the galaxy brain how about that <laughs> I've 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 like I've like half joked this this uh, this year so far, and, and I'm I think I might be convincing me convincing myself that this is going to happen. But I, I'm almost I've almost completely convinced myself that we're just going to ride out a mostly mediocre year. We're going to squeeze into the playoffs all because Chris is just trying to find that perfect formula. And then, and then it's going to happen. We're actually going to, we're going to, we're going to win the cup this year in just the most like shithouse possible way. I mean, all you got to do to win the cup is win three games, right? And if he qualifies the low seat this year, it's three games on the road back to back, which I guess, you know, I mean, it's tough, but it's totally doable. Your team's good enough. Um, 
I'm sort of I'm sort of rooting for that outcome because he's 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 looking at a really difficult year if it carries on like this. We are going to be <laughs> on his back the whole way, and if he gets a cup at the end of this, I I hope he just tears his shirt off and runs three times around the arena just <laughs> screaming. I told you so. I told you. Yeah, actually, what what if the dragging out- Connor laid with him? <laughs> <laughs> What if the real galaxy brain is he's just convincing teams that like we're just shit again and then they just naturally decide to play and not like try to bypass the press and then that's how we ended up winning the cup. Oh my god. We're oh, able to just play the way we did before. You just gave it all away, Fernando. You just <laughs> <laughs> I have to delete these files, god damn it. <laughs> Wow, like, wow, this, this is getting really soccer anime now, so thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been reading Giant Killing? Is that what this is all about? Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess looking forward to, to a Saturday's game. Uh, it'll be the first visit of Zlatan Ibrahimovic to Red Bull Arena, so... Uh, we hope to see all of you guys there. Um, if not, I guess uh, you know you're going to be seeing more. Uh, seeing you're going to see the unrelating rule of attendance chat rule over Red Bull Twitter for yet another week. Jonathan, <laughs> um, but I think we'll take the moment to thank uh, Mr. Fido. Thanks, Austin, for coming on the show and, shed, and shedding some great insight on this episode. It's a pleasure. Thank you both for letting me talk a lot more than I probably should. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Our listeners probably say the same thing. Our listeners say the same thing to us at the end of every week. It's all good. Yeah. I'm surprised. (laughs) I don't don't know how we still have listeners. So thank you guys who actually do listen to us. (laughs) You guys guys are on a very fun show. Thanks very much for having me out. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Austin. And uh, for me and Fernando, we hope to see you... uh, well, Fernando will hope to see you at Red Bull Arena. I'm not going to be there, as you fucking know. I'm across the ocean. So uh, <laughs> I will unfortunately be watching on stream. Whether it's illegal or illegal stream is up for you to find out. But I will be watching on stream. So so is uh, Metro Fan TV saying peace out and tweet 69 to Franco Panizzo. Thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs>